I was reading a book recently earlier this year. The author was saying, and the title is called Gentle and Lowly. And he says, this is the only time the Lord lets us in on what his heart is like in this way. And he uses this term. We see the compassion of the Lord, the love of the Lord. But here he actually says, I am gentle and I am lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's one thing just to be thinking on, meditating on before we come to it in a few weeks. And another is, what is the Sabbath? What is it that's required uh, by Jesus as he comes and he works uh, on the Sabbath? What is that rest, that day of rest look like? look like for us as believers. And so uh, may the Lord grant grace as you, uh, as he brings those things to mind in the weeks to come. Matthew chapter 10 and beginning of verse 34 reads this, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. This is Jesus speaking. Remember, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one, receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones, even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Would you join me as we pray and ask the Lord uh, to bless the preaching of his word? Our Father, we do pray that as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will your word go out from your mouth, and it will not return empty as you promise, but it will accomplish that which you purpose, and it will succeed in the thing for which you send it. Amen. As we look at this text in Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 34, we see two things that Jesus is requiring of his disciples as they want to follow him. We looked at this as these disciples are being sent out to do miraculous signs and wonders and healing and preaching the gospel. They're going out to the lost house of Israel. Jesus already promised that persecution will come, and yet he gets a little bit more specific And talking about the idea of following Jesus first requires sacrifice. We'll look at two things this morning. In this first text, the longer portion, the longer half of this text this morning, following Jesus requires sacrifice, and following Jesus brings reward. Sacrifice and reward themes, two things that would look contradictory uh, otherwise, and yet to see that Jesus is calling his disciples to sacrifice. First, he says to sacrifice the idea of everyone liking you. you know, disciples are called to sacrifice everyone liking me. Jesus says he did not come to bring peace to the earth, but a sword. Actually brings division, not this idea of everyone getting along and peace. Even peace with God. That's not what he necessarily came to bring, but he 
is bringing a sword. Jesus states in other passages in the New Testament statements that say why it is that he has come. We've looked at one already in Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In Luke chapter 5, verse 31, Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in the darkness. These are things in which Jesus says, here is the reason that I have come. And bringing those passages that I just read into a summary statement, one could say that Jesus has come to accomplish the will of his Father and fulfill the Scriptures. And that is to redeem those who are dead in their sins and shine light into the darkness. Jesus makes it very clear that he has not come to do what we men and women wish of him to do. But he has come to do the will of his Father, as promised in the Old Testament. Jesus is not our Messiah in, in the sense of ordering, being ordered around, or that we can tell him what he can and cannot do. And we have to be honest here, when we look at this text, it does seem strange, with other parts of Scripture that we read, to hear of Jesus saying that he did not come to bring peace. Right? Maybe our first reading, you might be more familiar with this text, and, and yet as we read it first in that first sentence to say, he didn't come to bring peace? But wait a second. We know what the scripture says in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, that Jesus does come to bring peace to all the earth. There's peace on earth. Uh, we read that text at Christmas. Glory to God on the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. That's what the angels are proclaiming at Jesus' birth when they come before the shepherds. Jesus' coming was proclaimed to bring peace on earth. His disciples offer peace to the households they come to. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus says, to live at peace with everyone. And yet peace does not come by avoiding conflict. In the Old Testament, there was a peace offering that Israel would bring before the Lord. Uh, Romans 15, verse 33 says, May the God of peace, he's, lots of characteristics are given of God, but one is he's the God of peace. May the God of peace be with you all. Most all of Paul's letters in the New Testament start with grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness with which no one will see the Lord. So, says, on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Doesn't Jesus come to bring peace? And yet here he says he did not come to bring peace to the earth, but a sword. The better translation, which we all love those types of things, right? When somebody says, oh, this is better translated, not by me, but by other scriptures. So the King James is one I grew up with and says, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Yet the ESV reads, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace with whom, with among those, excuse me, with whom he is pleased. Quite different, isn't it? It may seem like a small thing, but we can often get a verse or two in our mind and make it bear the weight of really big ideas that God has come to bring peace to everyone. 
And yet the text says, peace among those with whom he is pleased. The point is not, in Luke 2, 14, and here, that the whole earth has warm and fuzzy peace in it. That's not why Jesus has come. But that those who know the Lord are at peace, that they are at rest and flourishing. There are those people with whom the Lord is pleased, and there are those people with whom he is not. And that division is made clear on the grounds of the gospel and nothing else. It's Jesus who comes and does bring peace, but peace with those whom he is pleased and with those that he is not, a sword. There's actually a division. True peace comes through death. A sword that pierces Christ is a similar sword through the gospel that divides the people of God. Lasting peace comes only through the gospel. It does not come merely by being said and spoken of. By proclaiming peace and unity cannot bring about genuine peace with God and peace with humankind. The gospel of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for sinners is what brings genuine peace. Jesus is separating, dividing those who are his from those who are not. Those who are not his will be enemies of those who are the Lord's. So our peace with God actually brings division or a sword in relation to others. We saw that last week, and we see it again here in this text. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 speaks of the work of the gospel and says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Genuine, lasting peace with the God of the universe, the one whose wrath was overflowing against us because of our sins. Yet we have peace with God because of the work of Jesus Christ. We have been justified. Our sins have been declared righteous. We have been made righteous through the righteousness of Jesus on our behalf, and we have peace with God. His wrath has been satisfied. He's no longer angry and wrathful towards his people. He is instead pleased. For those upon whom the Lord's favor rests, he is pleased with you. Your father loves you. You look and say, but I am a sinner. How can I be at peace with the holy, perfect God? Paul says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Ephesians 4 comes in verse 1. Paul not only says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, but then builds upon that calling and says, I therefore as a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The calling to which you have been called is peace with God. You've been justified by faith. You have a new identity in Christ. Walk in a manner worthy of that calling. That's the calling. And do so with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Those things can only be done because you have peace with God. Those things can only be done as you walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Our, our president, Joe Biden, in his recent inauguration speech, was noted as having mentioned the word unity eight times. In fact, he makes this statement. He says, my whole soul is in it today, on this January day, 
What is his whole soul in? Bringing America together, uniting our people, uniting our nation. And I ask every American to join me in this cause. It sounds like a tremendous message. We as a nation, as people, uniting together. And the president, the head of the nation, calling us to do so. But what is it that is supposed to unite us? The fact that we are citizens of this country. And yet, that's not enough to do so. Because we agree as Christians that the Bible says that every human being on the planet is united to one another in the sense that we are all part of the human race. There is one race, and it's the human race that has been made in the image of God. We also all agree that we are created good, that God made us in his image and that creation was good. We also agree that sin has caused all humans to be born into sin and have marred that image, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We also believe that we are all united and that we need a redeemer who can awaken us from spiritual death that we might live. But as a nation, as a nation of Christians and Mormons, Muslims, Jews, atheists, among other things, we are not united on many things. Because we as Christians have believed that salvation comes through Jesus, then that means we believe that other religions who preach, among other things, another way of attaining heaven or perfection, achieving salvation, that they are not only wrong, but damned at their core. How can we be united when our deeply held beliefs declare the other person dead, wrong, eternally? Disciples of Jesus know that because Jesus has come to divide and separate, that God has always separated the people on the earth in relationship to him, to who he is, and to those who are not his people and those who are his then we can be certain, we can be confident that God knows as he unites us with others within a nation, within any other social or relational sphere, that we as his disciples can genuinely be at peace with him and seek to be at peace with others, but they cannot reciprocate in the same way. Those who are not at peace with God cannot be genuinely and thoroughly at peace with others. This is the difference as we walk through the Beatitudes, we saw the difference between peacemaking and peacekeeping. One is willing just to kick everything under the rug and to act as though it doesn't exist. The other is genuine and transparent and says, we're messed up. We, disciples of Jesus, are messed up, but we experience peace with the Holy God. Our sin has driven us away from him, and yet he pursued us and redeemed us. And even though there's a sword that divides the sword has also pierced his side. And because he has died for us, by God's grace, we have experienced faith in the shed blood of Jesus. We have, have peace with God. And we can recognize and see the division that comes by Christ to not be, merely bring a superficial peace. We can see in this division that comes through Christ, this is... God, who is working, ultimately wants to bring you into peace with him. Not merely a mm-hmm, uh-huh, among us as a nation to, quote, have unity with one another. 
The idea and the message of unity is wonderful, but it's only possible as we humble ourselves and are unified in the gospel. It's the only way that genuine, true unity can come. Because otherwise, what happens in our pride and our sinfulness is one just starts shouting over the other. My deeply held beliefs are more important than yours. My deeply held beliefs say that you are going to hell. And my deeply held beliefs say that you are an infidel and worthy to be destroyed. See how all of a sudden there can't be unity when we genuinely hold to our belief system? And yet the Christian belief system says, even though I genuinely believe in the person of work of Jesus to redeem me, and I have peace with God, so can you. You are not an infidel. You are a sinner in need of grace, and grace is extended to you through the spread hands of Jesus on the cross. There's a message of hope and of genuine peace that can come to them, that can come to all. Jesus does not come just bringing peace or getting along with one another, but he comes bringing a sword. There comes division. Not everyone will like you. The disciple of Jesus sacrifices that everyone is just going to like me. Notice the verse 35, I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. Not everyone will like you. The disciple of Jesus is willing to sacrifice that for genuine peace with God, for a genuine relationship, to follow Christ with their life. The sword is an analogy Because the sword, as seen in the passage before, takes lives. Those who are turned over, those who are put to death. Verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. The sword is real. The sword takes life. The sword divides. And it divides intimate relationships. The disciple of Jesus recognizes, is willing to sacrifice, not everyone liking him. The disciple of Jesus is willing to sacrifice the closest of human relationships. Like I said, we saw this last week with family members turning on the disciples of Jesus, turning them in and putting them to death. Here Jesus says he has come to set family against another. One set a family member against one another. Notice the language used. For I have come to set a man against his father. He doesn't say, for I have come, and in so doing, a man has come against his father. The activity done by Jesus is division. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. Here Jesus says he has come, he has set family members against one another. Earlier in the Old Testament, you have God selecting, choosing Israel as his chosen people, as the ones he loves and has poured his affection on, his people. That sets in contrast all of those that weren't. He selected Israel, but not the Canaanites. And not the, all the other ites. But there's an affection. There's a division. And here he comes and he has set one family member against another for my sake. Remember, we saw this last week. Several times he'll say this. For my sake, these things are happening. The closest of relationships. A man against his father. Father and son. A daughter and a mother. 
tongue-in-cheek, we kind of see the next one, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Okay, sometimes, right? Son-in-law against his mother-in-law. I love my mother-in-law if you're watching. (laughs) And yet at the gospel, because of Jesus for his sake, there is division, even in the most intimate of relationships. The gospel just doesn't divide religions, nations, neighbors, but even families. And maybe you have seen this in your family. Maybe siblings, children, parents, cousins will keep their distance from you, not want regular interactions with you, would turn you in if it was illegal to be a Christian, simply because you are a Christian. You see this in a Muslim uh, brother or sister who comes to faith in Christ. As a believer, they, this happens with them with everyone in their family. They are completely ostracized. They would be put to death. And they have no one. They are all alone except for any other believer that they might be able to be united to. Uh, this portion uh, is coming from a similar uh, Old Testament passage in Micah chapter 7, verse 5 through 7. It says, Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. See some similarities. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, he doesn't say, I'll grow discouraged. I'll get even. This would be, I can't bear it. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And Luke 14, verses 25 through 27, is a parallel passage to this one here. And it says there, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Others are going to separate themselves from us because of the gospel. But Jesus also warns that some will love others more than himself. And that too is revealing the heart of the disciple. Do we love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, and mind? Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not deserving of me. Notice the order of commands that Jesus gives when One of the lawyers in Matthew 22 comes to him and asks him a question, and he says he's desiring to test him. The lawyer says, teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The command to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind will divide and will separate. We'll put other loves into proper order. But the opposite will not be true. The opposite of loving others more than God will turn everything upside down for the disciple and will ultimately reveal a heart that desires Earthly loves more than God. That puts other things, idols, name it, relationships, which can be very much idols, easy for us to fall into and to pursue. 
but the one who is truly a disciple of Jesus is the one who has given up all rights and ownership of his life, of his relationships, because of the surpassing worth of Jesus. Many in history have given up amenities, living a life with little to no luxuries, merely for the purpose of feeling spiritual, feeling better, uh, feeling environmental, not wanting to waste things, or not wanting to be like other people, or even because they don't care about stuff like that. Many people in life have given up lots of things, sacrificed lots of things, but maybe just for themselves. Merely good ideals is not what Jesus is saying will bring you to finding your life. It is only the one who loses their life for Jesus' sake that will truly find life. The one who is willing to cling to Christ when all other relationships that are closest to them might be dividing. It is not because the disciple, in his desire to pursue Christ, intentionally is separating themselves from all other relationships. It's not because the disciple of Jesus ought to be so annoying and so belligerent that they push everyone away. What Jesus is saying more is that this will occur, that these relationships will be marred and will be different because of the gospel and because of one's relationship in solidarity to Christ. The disciple counts the cost and picks up his cross and follows after Jesus. Jesus is the pearl of great price that one gives up everything for. Jesus is worth more than anything else that we have been given in this life. This is what the rich young ruler missed. Jesus knew his heart. Jesus knew that as long as the wealthy man had his riches, that Jesus or anything else would come in second place. It wasn't just about the money. It was about his heart all along. He did not believe Jesus to really be the one sent from God, or else he would have willingly walked away from everything to follow Jesus. You could put in this passage that he loved money more than Jesus. You and I might struggle loving something else more than we love Christ. In the last decade or so, maybe before that, but we've seen a trend where beards have become really popular on men. Come on, you would agree, right? It's almost ubiquitous nowadays to see a bald guy with a big bushy beard, black rimmed glasses and arms full of tats. Men oil their beards, they get them professionally trimmed and really let them grow long and bushy. The great pastor Charles Spurgeon even chimes in to say, that growing a beard is a habit most natural, spiritual, manly, and beneficial. Men, if you needed any other reason to grow facial hair. I have really wanted to grow a beard for a very long time, a big bushy beard, as long as I could. Like just let it go for over a year to really see what it would look like. But you know what? As much as I like the idea of being a bald guy with a sweet beard, I like my wife a whole lot more. (laughs) More specifically, I like kissing my wife a whole lot more. She has been very gracious to me in letting me grow a beard for several months at a time. But there reaches a point when my desire for her kisses greatly overpowers my facial hair pontifications. (laughs) And the razors come out. A silly example 
But Jesus demands of his followers a loyalty which transcends even the closest of family ties, even the closest or the most um, desirous expectations and desires of our heart. He expects them to follow him even to death and to incur death simply, as he says, because of me. The gospel divides, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing for those who know Jesus that the gospel divides because we can be confident we are in Christ. And yet it's also a good thing that the gospel divides for the non-Christian because they know and we know that they are outside of Christ. And yet at the same time, because we see and know they are outside of Christ, on the other side, let's say, of the dividing line, that they are at the same time in the scope of our mission, our prayers and desires that they would come to faith. If we didn't know where the dividing line was, and you don't know who is on what side, you don't know where they stand in relationship to peace with God, if everyone is warm and fuzzy and feeling all of these nice sympathies, but no truth is expressed, unity is impossible. Unity with God and unity with one another. For the disciple, as he says, you are either with me or you're not. There is no middle ground. You cannot say you love someone else more than Jesus and still say you are a follower of his. The disciple is willing to sacrifice even the closest of relationships. And the disciple is willing, as Jesus says, to sacrifice one's own life. Matthew 12, 29 through 30, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Luke 14, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all he has cannot be, be my disciple. And we read this passage earlier, Luke 14, 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot me be my disciple. This is the first reference that Matthew gives of a cross. Here in this verse 38, the reference is to the Roman style of execution. Crucifixion on a cross was the most humiliating way to die and brought shame on the whole family. Talking about dividing relationships. But Jesus says, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. That was one of the most shameful aspects of the Roman means of crucifixion on a cross. Was not only did you have to die naked on a cross in front of others to see, but you had to bear this crossbeam and walk with it for everyone else to take a long look at the one who is about to die. Now, whoever does not do that and follow me is not deserving of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For the sake of Christ, the disciple gives up all things. Discipleship is not just a matter of life and death. It is much more serious than that. Let me give us just one application at this point. I think that knowing this brings relief, not anxiety. Knowing this, that the relationships can be divided, that God, uh, Jesus comes and says, he doesn't, I didn't come bring to, to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set these relationships against one another. And this idea of suffering and difficulty coming in relationships and life for the disciple actually brings relief, not anxiety. 
maybe you've had some uh, issue or disease or, or something in your house that you were a bit embarrassed about. And maybe you have warts, a bad acne, a weird rash, something. But you go to the store and guess what? They have medication and creams for it. Because you're not the first person who's ever had it. And not only do they have something that might help it, they've got lots of options. Because lots of people have had the same thing you are struggling with having. Lots of people have had this, and some of these things don't work for some people. They have a form of it that's not like other people's form of it. It's unique. And so there's lots of options on medications and creams and things to help people with the embarrassing things that they have. And that should bring relief, not nearly anxiety, although it's anxiety-inducing to stand in front of all of those options and wonder which one will work for you. But here, knowing this, knowing that these things might happen, actually brings relief. We're not the first ones. Man, we've got some messed up relationships in our family. You're not the first ones. The gospel has divided me from everybody I know. Nobody else in my family knows Christ. It's hard. You're not the first ones. Look at the community of believers around you. Hear their story. Pray with them. Cry with them. You are not the first ones. They are not the first ones. What relief we have. And the God who has not united us to all around us, but to himself and in himself to one another. God brings peace with us and peace with those who are in Christ. And while all these things might be swirling about, we're able to come in here, come into relationships with other believers, and to realize that these relationships will, can occur, and yet we are united to the God of all salvation and life and eternity. The second application in this section is it's worth finding your life in Jesus, even if you lose everything else in life. It is worth finding your life in Jesus to lose everything if it comes to that, if you have to. Following Jesus does bring sacrifice, but the last few verses, and quickly says, it also brings reward. You notice Jesus says several times, the one who receives me receives a reward. The one who receives the righteous person receives a righteous person's reward. The one who receives a prophet receives a prophet's reward. Even the one he says, and he gives this example in verse 42, even when you give a cup of cold water to a little one, truly I say to you, you will by no means lose the reward. Receiving reward. The follower of Jesus is the one who's being received, but you and I receiving them. Receive the reward. And what is the reward? Look at verse 40. Whoever receives you, disciples, uh, by hospitality, uh, by bringing them into their home. We've seen that earlier in the passage. Whoever receives you, receives me, Jesus says. And whoever receives me, because they received you, receives him who sent me. Receives the Father. Who has sent me? Receiving Jesus is the equivalent of receiving God, the one who has sent us, is the equivalent of receiving the reward. The reward is Jesus himself. What greater reward could there, reward could there be? Certainly not mansions. Certainly not crowns in heaven. 
Although those things are mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, or, or things like it in pictures and imageries or things. But here it's clear, you're receiving Christ. You're receiving Jesus himself. The reward is not status in heaven. It's not status on earth. The reward is Jesus. You have these groups of people that are mentioned, the, the prophets, the righteous ones, the little ones. Jesus is saying in three roughly equivalent ways that those, fo- those who receive his followers, because they accept what those individuals stand for, will in turn be received by God, rejected by everyone else, even the closest of relationships, at peace and received by God himself. The reward that is given is Christ himself. Verse 42, I love this, whoever gives one of these little ones. Do you know who the little ones are? They're not children who are around. We don't have any image of children who are around, which would normally be little ones. In Matthew's gospel, regularly, when he's mentioning little ones, he's referring to his disciples. These little ones. Notice he said the prophets and the righteous people, but whoever gives one of these little ones, children, my children, you have a special class of prophets. You, you have a special class of those who righteous persons. But you and I, we get to be little ones. We get to be children of God himself. These disciples, whoever even gives them a cup of cold water. Some are receiving them. Some maybe are housing them. But even the notion of just the smallest of task, giving someone a cup of cold water, and the reward is not taken away. The reward is Christ himself. The reward is for the prophet and those who receive them. The reward uh, for the little ones and those who receive them. The rewards are not only for those. The rewards of Christ and himself are not only for those who go and do big and amazing things. Find themselves on the radio or TV for Christ. Certainly not. But even down to the smallest of actions, the reward is the same. Choosing to follow Christ, no matter what, will cost, can cost the disciple everything. And yet the the disciple receives Christ himself, who is everything. Let's pray. Our Father, what a text to be able to come and see the sacrifice and reward that is given to the disciples in you and following after Christ. Would you continue to work in us? Reminding us of the gospel, uh, the gospel that comes to us sinners who are completely undeserving. The Christ who is worthy of all praise and adoration willingly gives his life to become like those undeserving that we might be united with God at peace with him for all of eternity. Completely astounding. And yet may we give our lives, willingly sacrificing all, to follow Christ. And Father, would you continue? As Christ says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. There is real judgment that comes. Would you continue to open the eyes of the blind, allow those who are deaf to hear the good news of the gospel, that they would come to put their faith and trust in Jesus alone to save them, and that they would be united to him, receive the reward of Christ himself for all of eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.